This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore the amazing worlds that TriTac has built and we try to find new and better ways to bring the awesome into your game. This week, we're talking about solo play or specifically how to play a single character in a campaign, how to make those adventures successful. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we get in this situation? Because we've been advocating all along that the best thing is to have good team play and good interactions and how to give everybody their spotlight. And now we're talking about having only a GM and a single player. So, Trav, how did this happen? Well, for me, I have my daughter, and she wanted to get into role-playing, so I made a character up for her, and I ran her through several adventures. I've since run another solo campaign with her, as well as my girlfriend, Becky. She had not role-played in a long time, so I basically, uh, what's the term I want to use? A Mary Sue character, basically based on her, so it was easy for her to get into the mindset and then went about that way. So usually if you have someone, parent, child, or significant other, that's a good way to bring about a solo campaign. So you have a situation where the person doesn't feel comfortable integrating into a, a gaming group yet, so you kind of ease them in by making them familiar with the actual play of the game. Yes, uh, as far as the mechanics and just how to go about role-playing. Not so much the ga- the crunch, but just, okay, explaining situation to them and how they would go about doing it and occasionally... The, the verbal interplay, instead of just saying, oh, I do this. Well, no, you're actually one-on-one saying, okay, the player says this and the GM says that, and actually going through it. My daughter's only been role-playing three or four years, and Becky hadn't done it in ages, so it was a good way to refamiliarize Becky and to teach Shelly how to go about doing this by a solo campaign, because you have the one-on-one contact where you're not having to divert your attention to four or five different people. The situation that I got into was we had a group that was playing, and this was this was when I was much younger, because um, I haven't done a whole lot of solo play beyond the beyond that point. But we were all it was kind of fresh out of high school, and one of our guys was in the army. Another guy went to Europe for the summer. One of the other guys just wasn't around. I think he was working with his dad or something like that. So it was just me and the and the game master for the most part. And for a couple months, it was just me and him playing. Now, in my case, it was the dawning of role-playing as we know it. So it was just me and my friend, and there really wasn't any other role-playing groups uh, in the area, at least I didn't know about. Uh, we, For about six months, we ran a campaign we, every weekend. We, I quickly learned how, how to move that five miles wherever I needed to. Oh, so it's a learning experience for both the player and the GM, having a solo yeah. campaign because you have to, you know, you got this one person here keeping you on your toes all the time, specifically trying mm-hmm. to get you to 
work on this and work on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've had that in my experience, too. It's also it's much more collaborative. A solo campaign, you really can't play the tour version of, of GMing with just you and another player. Definitely, he's going to have some say in how things work in that world. Uh, unlike we have like six players, well, there's really no way you can let six players have that much free reign in your campaign. But one person, you, you'd be more collaborative in that case. In my particular case, I also was trying to introduce people to games. Uh, the first thing I tried to do was to introduce my first wife into playing D&D. And we used to spend hours after hours just sitting around and creating a small scenario for her to play through as a character and me critiquing her performance and her choices. It was actually a lot better than it might sound like. For someone who's never role-played before, it's very hard to understand this concept of creating a virtual space in your mind and having rules that are not reality to, to run your character through. And then later on, when I got involved with TriTac, and of course now as still involved with TriTac, I'm always running into people and saying, here's this great game, and I think we would be be fun to play it. And they're like, well, I've never heard it before. And I, and I, I would then start talking to about it, and I'd say, well, why don't we just try a sample scenario for you to do? And you can go ahead and, and play through that, just a, a short adventure, and see whether you like it or not. And if you do, then maybe you could join this uh, our ongoing campaign, or maybe you could buy the book and get some other people interested, and you could GM it. Because you know you may have that kind of experience where you can do that. That's the reasons that you know that I saw originally for it to happen. But there's actually a couple other reasons that I can think of. One is where if you're willing to do a short adventure, where everybody might just drop out for the night. You know, we had Snowmageddon around here, and there were a lot of people who couldn't get places, and you might only have one person show up to your gaming session. Raring to go, and what are you going to do? You were ready to play a whole team of six people. Actually, that's thing I did when I was in the service, when I was running my Bureau 13 uh, campaign, I decided to do four different solo adventures, but they were pre-joining the Bureau. We played the encounter that, that got them in the Bureau. The origin story. The origin story, yeah. And each one was done separately. Worked out because each one got a really good taste for what Supernatural was like without the Bureau backing you up. For some, it was really dangerous. Like the guy who had to fight a dragon mm -hmm. in, in the Canadian Arctic to another person who was busy trying to figure out how, how to help some giants in England. Okay. It's fairly diverse. It's like all over the map with those adventures. And then there's the final possibility, which is where you have a player who really just wants to play one character. He doesn't want to be part of a team. He wants his character to be going on solo missions, whether it's for Bureau 13 or for Fringeworthy or whatever game he's playing. He wants to be the only character. He wants to be the star. And the GM, if there are any other players there, then the, their role would be to play NPCs against his player character. Let's talk about some characters who, by their very nature, would be almost required to be by themselves. Ninjas. Ninjas. Okay. <laughs> is, is that really true? Do ninjas always operate by themselves? Well, no. Not, not in the real world, no. But, you know, in movies, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the solo assassin. A lot of times a sniper will have a spotter, but that is not really a character. That could be a henchman or, or a mook that travels with him because a spotter doesn't really do a whole lot other than work for the sniper. So in that way, I would say a sniper. Though I said an assassin or ninja could operate with a group, of, like you said, they're mooks. He's the one that actually is going to be doing the kill, 
the rest are just well cannon fodder for for, for the GM's cannon fodder. Yeah. Yeah. How about a spy like James Bond? He doesn't travel with anyone. I'm thinking that's another one. Yeah. The, the yeah. Solo spy. Bond. James Bond. Matter of fact, if James Bond were to ask you to go on a mission with him, you would have to. I would say no. <laughs> That's like, that's like Dirty Harry. It's like, why is this guy always getting all these new partners? What's going on here? What do you mean I'm a right. Batman originally was a solo character. Superman was a solo character. Right. Spider-Man. Definitely solo. But there's there are characters who, by their very nature, nobody wants to work with them. There's a reason why they're alone is because of something about them. In one of my friendsworthy campaigns, one of the players decided he wanted to play a Dalek. Mm, right. Uh, yeah. yes. Daleks do not play well with anything other than Daleks, and nobody else wanted to play a Dalek. Now, as it was, he actually ended up playing that character in a group for a short period of time, but it was only a matter of time before that Dalek was jetted off the side of the fringe path. <laughs> well, you know... Yeah. Uh, in reality, and a lot of people get this wrong because the, when they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, they think Chaotic Evil is the most evil character. They're wrong. He's the most lunatic character. I would not want a Chaotic Evil character in my party if someone knew how to play Chaotic Evil properly. I would be like, no, no, I'm sorry. I'll take Lawful Evil. I'll take Neutral Evil. But Chaotic Evil is completely out of the question. You never know what this crazy is going to do to you. Right. They're self-destructive. Yeah, Chaotic Evil basically is just like a ravening monster, basically, is what Chaotic Evil <laughs> like, psychotic! Yeah, right. Well, you know, until TSR and his, his infinite wisdom redefine Chaotic Evil to be self-absorbed, not crazy. That's not nearly as fun. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, it's possible mm -hmm. that you could have a character who the situation is dire enough that you would need to play that character, but they couldn't really work well with anybody else. Nobody would trust them. Nobody would work with them. Everybody else would feel that they were in constant danger. Another one uh, is if you wanted to play a vampire and you were with a group of normal people. No one wants to go to sleep with the vampire in the room. Ah, uh, yeah. Nope. No. You might have a situation where you say, okay, that vampire is a team of one. You know, he's going to go on and do his own missions, either in Bureau 13 or, or Fringeworthy, assuming you're someplace where a vampire can exist. And the uh, IDET, because they so sorely need explorers, might be willing to do it. Uh, you possibly could even say, all right, well, you know, you have a long history of, of working and being a ruler or whatever like that. And so we actually can trust you. You have a moral basis that we can believe that you'll do what you say you're going to do so we'll let you go on missions for us and represent us as long as you adhere to this code a normal team member probably wouldn't want to be with you because if you, all of a sudden you snap you're out there on the fringe baths you know 200 300 miles away from idet no one there to help you but you so there might be good reasons why you wouldn't want to do that also, it might be that the mission requires such specific skills that only one person is actually qualified. Right. You mentioned the sharpshooter, the sniper. Yeah. Well, that's a very specific skill. If you wanted to go in and do that, you wouldn't necessarily need an entire team to do that. Oh, nope. another good uh, solo character. If you're into this, you could do this with either Bureau 13 or Fringeworthy. The computer hacker, another specialist. Right. Yeah. If you had the rules for net running and whatnot, you could have a solo campaign like in a cyberpunk world. This guy goes in and hacks and 
The GM would have to sit there and make Netscape-type adventures, you know, what the various domains are and whatnot, and that would be a really good inclusive campaign for a solo play. Anyone who's ever played games like Cyberpunk knows that whenever it comes time to do cyber hacking, everybody goes and get, goes on a, a dinner break and leaves the GM alone with the hacker guy because nobody else can do anything. In Cyberpunk, the Artalsorian Cyberpunk, yeah, you can have multiple people go in and hack, but the problem is to be a netrunner has to be like a focus for your character. For example, they, it's basically a class skill. So if you're a netrunner, that's what you do better than anything else. So if you want to go in with more than one person, you have to go in with more than one netrunner. Most people play, you're not, you're not going to play a party of netrunners. Most of the time you have one netrunner. The game is actually designed to have more than one netrunner do a netrun, which is kind of, it gets rough because like if you're playing the netrunner, there's a lot of pressure on you to well, go in and hack this and hack that. It's like, by myself? It's like, would you invade a base by yourself? It's like, that's what you're asking me to do. So, like, all the high-level net runs, if you only have one net runner, generally is it's, – it's very, very difficult to do with one person. Yet, generally, that's what happens. And that's exactly the situation we're talking about here where we're asking one person to go in and complete a mission. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Doc Savage. He's surrounded by people who, who are all the best. So in a lot of ways, it's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Granted, you can make that work, but you all have to agree that someone's going to be playing the superhero of the party, and everyone else is just going to be playing people. Another reason I could see for someone to be choosing a solo character is if you had a character who had the personality, and this is sort of like what you were talking about with the Doc Savage, a rugged individualist, someone who just is an island under themselves, who sees themselves as striking out into you know the, the wilderness danger whatever and without a thought of the fact that you know that uh, what you should have more people why I'm perfectly you know complete in and of myself there's lots of characters like that in literature Conan is a very good example of that Doc Savage and Captain Future though he did have his his, his buds so it's possible for you to play one of these very self-reliant type characters who wouldn't see a reason to have more people. They would only see them as a liability because except for very specific situations, they wouldn't bring anything to the table that they, the main character didn't already have. Captain Oates, he spent 10 years exploring the Fringe Pass all by himself. Now there's a solo campaign for someone who wants to try it. That's true. I had totally forgotten about Captain Oates, and you're right. He pretty much did himself. And uh, in Fringe War himself, there are a number of characters that are like that. Old men are like that because they just go walking along. And any of your fringe walkers, unless they're traveling in a group like a bunch of gypsies, might very well be individual characters. So they might get that, as you put it, John, that thousand-mile stare and just yep. start walking down the fringe paths one day and start having adventures just by themselves. That was what happened with my character when uh, when I did the solo thing with, with the Game Master that I had. That's what we were playing. was Fringeworthy. I got so used to playing him solo, and he had developed so many personality ticks in the development of him during the play that when we had other people around, uh, we started playing in a group. I found it very difficult to play him in a group of people because he was so used to being – he was so headstrong and so used to doing missions his way or the highway type of deal that he was a very difficult character to play around other people, even when I tried to. I'd have to go out of character not to play him that way, so I eventually had to retire him. All right, well, assuming you don't want to retire him, we have a character, and this character is going to be doing solo play. 
for whatever reason, whether it's it's a, a personality trait, whether it's a psychological issue, whether they have a particular skill bent that they want to pursue, they don't need other people for. So you have to have a character who's really well-rounded, I would think. And when I was looking through the skills that in the D20 Modern version, I was saying, what's the most important skills that a person like this would have to, so that they could operate independently? The first one I saw was the treat injury skill. You have to be able to fix yourself up. Oh, yes, definitely. If you're out there by yourself. Now, in D20 Modern, they don't let you do surgery on yourself. So you could be like that guy who got his, his arm trapped in the glacier and he had to cut his own arm off. Though I suppose the GM would let you do that if you wanted to, but uh, a lot of the special feats having to do with surgery and things like that are for use on other people, not yourself. But that's, that's where the game system comes in. Conceptually, there's no reason why anybody can't perform almost any kind of surgery on themselves because there's been examples of people doing just that. So what other skills, whether you're using the, the D20 system or the old Tritech system or whatever, what other types of skills do you think would be really essential for a character to operate independently? Survival. Ah, yes. Uh, I'd also have to yeah. say your investigative slash charisma-based skills, or your of diplomacy, gather information, sense motive, investigate itself. You have to be able to have good socialization skills. Yes, Right, yeah. so because you want to be able to get information from people and you want to be able to negotiate deals and you want to get people to trust you. One of the things we said, or at least I've always been the main proponent of it, is saying is that every time you go to a new world, the first thing you want to do is to get someone to befriend you, someone to take your side so that you can then use their knowledge base to be able to move more effectively through the world. So that means you have to be able to get people to trust you, and, and you have to be able to communicate effectively. So, yeah, I agree, Trav, that'd be really important. Oh, yeah. But, John, you used the term survival, and that's kind of a, a fuzzy term. Could you be more specific as the kind of, of things that someone has to be able to do under that? Basically, it means it's you have the knowledge to, um, well, survive. And Aunt John, you can't use the same word. John, the word you're looking for is thrive. But basically, it breaks down to... Uh, being able to find food, water, or shelter in, in, in the environment you're in. Usually it's a hostile environment. If you're stuck in the mountains during a snowstorm, you mm -hmm. know enough to how, how to make an ice cave. Keep uh, staying warm when the only thing you have for insulation is snow. It's also the ability to recognize a threat early enough that you can prepare to deal with it. You make this survival, you may notice that, well, okay, there's a front moving in. And it means it's going to be raining like heck. I better find something that someplace stay dry because no fun getting wet. For uh, example, you're a swamp, you're saying, you know, you come up to the edge of the water, and uh, your survival skill could be a couple of things. It could be don't drink that water, it's stagnant. Or it could be, hey, this looks like a good place for an alligator to jump out and grab me. Don't eat that plant because it's poisonous. Or this snake is okay, that snake is not. Mushrooms yeah, is another thing. Being able to recognize a threat before it's too late to do anything about it is an important part of survival. Yeah, yeah. So whatever representation your survival skills are in your particular game system, I think that would be important for a, a solo character because he has no one to rely on but himself. Nobody's going to pull him out of that quicksand. No one's going to pry him out of the jaws of that anaconda. <laughs> also having social skills. 
being able to hide, being able to fit in, being able to blend in sometimes. Being able to understand the culture in which you're in, recognize analogs, either back on Earth if you're playing Fringeworthy, or perhaps even if you have a, a monster in Bureau 13, but you say, well, yes, but that monster is rather cat-like, and I understand how cats operate, what their social structure is like, because most pack animals have social structures, and therefore that would help me figure out how to to interact with it, perhaps be non-threatening if I want to be non-threatening, or to be threatening if I'm trying to intimidate. All those things to be used to provide those synergies you're talking about toward your success checks. So, Bruce, you're saying things like knowledge skills would be good to have for synergy, because if you have, I believe in D&D and, of course, D20 Modern, if you have, I think it's five ranks in knowledge, well, for D&D it'd be nature, for modern it would be earth and life sciences. If you had five ranks in that, you get a plus two to your survival check. So knowledge skills would be good for a solo character to have. Now, if you can gather from what we're saying, it sounds like you're going to end up having lots of skills at low levels at this point. I think that's a question for later, but that kind of depends on where you're starting your character from. You know, what level the character is starting at. But yes, you're, you're definitely right that if you were playing a low-level character, they, w they would have a, a wide breadth of skills and not very high points in them. There's a feat in D&D &D and in D20 Modern. In D&D, &D, I forget what book it's in, but in D20 Modern, it's in the Urban Arcana uh, campaign book. It's called Jack of All Trades. Basically, what it is is you are allowed to use any untrained skill as if you had a rank in it. And that's any skill. I mean, it could be anything from auto-hypnosis from the psionics handbook to knowledge skills to sleight of hand, repair, pilot, all skills that you need to have ranks in. That would be a really good feat for a solo character to have because then he would be jack-of-all-trades, master of none. That sounds like a really good idea. If you were in a game like Fringeworthy or any game where you're not in a really urban environment, it'd probably be a good idea to have a ride skill, some kind of ability to handle whatever the uh, common form of it could be dry or drive uh, or you know whatever the common form of transportation is. You want to be able to use it. You don't want to be stuck on your feet if you could avoid it. The, the reasons for that are, I think, are pretty obvious. I mean, you'll get to where you want to go faster. You can outrun predators a lot easier if you're in a vehicle, usually. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, whatever is pulling the vehicle can be used to defend yourself with. Yeah. Did anybody besides me uh, see the remake of The Princess of Mars? Nope. <laughs> no, I wasn't aware that there was one. No. The one with Tracy Lords as the princess, as Deja Thoris? one point in it, they all jump onto ostriches and they start chasing after somebody. It is an amazing sight. I mean, those things really go. <laughs> They're really strong. <laughs> I just could imagine somebody with right ostrich, you know. <laughs> It'd be nice to be using a system that gave you that kind of flexibility in that kind of situation. I take it that in most game systems, when you have a ride skill, it would also include things like uh, how to handle, not just staying on the horse, because in D20 Modern, D20 OGL, we'll just do a blanket term, handle animal would be the other skill companion you would have to ride. Because ride, yeah, that's staying on the horse. 
but to maintain and possibly train that animal to, you know, upkeep and whatnot. Yeah, animal husbandry. Companion skill for that. Yeah. Some systems have it, some systems don't. Combine the skill into when riding is implied that you have general treatment and training of said animal. Right. No cowboy would have a horse that he couldn't take care of. I mean, he would know how to do everything that was necessary for that horse except shoe him. Yeah. A lot of good general skills, skills that are flexible and are able to cover things, covering socialization, covering hiding, transportation, treating injury, survival. These are all really good things Mm -hmm. to have. But the character itself, a character who's a solo character, really can't afford to have any dump stat. Uh, When I say a dump stat, I'm talking about the standard idea that you've got strength, constitution, intelligence. In most game systems, because you're building a team where you can concentrate on particular roles, then you'd say, okay, well, I'm not the talker, so therefore I can make my whatever is the correspondence for charisma, that can be my dump stat. I can have like a five or a six in that, giving me a lot more points to put over in my strength or into, into something else. I don't think you can do that if you're doing solo play. If you're rolling up your character, you really have no choice. What you get is what you get. If you're building it through points, you may end up with Joe Average. You know, he's average at everything with one stat that's a little above normal. Most systems out there will let you get at least one step above normal if you want to be average at everything else. I was looking at this through the D20 Modern, mm-hmm. looking at all the various skills that we were talking about, it seemed to me that the best ones, the ones that you wanted to make sure that you were above average in, uh, in other words, higher than a 10, was strength, dexterity, and intelligence. Yeah. And the reason I saw that was, first of all, both strength and dexterity are important for combat. And if you're playing D20, whatever flavor it is, you know there's going to be combat sooner or later. Oh, right. Yeah, you need the strength and dex for your melee and ranged attack bonuses. And your defense. Oh, oh yes, of course. Initiative. Um, if you're in a game like Fringeworthy, care and capacity. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. If you're somebody who's walking around with an eight strength, you know, that's okay if you've got like a big vehicle to carry all your stuff and you never go more than 200 feet away from it. But if you're actually doing some hiking or something like that, well, okay, that's not going to work out. But yeah, you're right. You end up with your smarts and strength and agility in most games. You end up with those as being your primary stats, and the rest are either average or maybe a little bit below average. Uh, you also said intelligence, Bruce. That would be for things like your skill points. Especially your skill points. Yes. Because someone who has the high intelligence is going to get extra skill points, and then you can use those to compensate for any lacking you have in stats by pumping up levels in those skills that are uh, would be related to that dump stat or, or those weaker stats that you might have. But as we pointed out, though, systems like D20 has a limit to how much you can actually put into one skill when you first build a character. Well, so, right. Yeah, so you, I think it's best you can get like a four, maybe a yeah. five. It's your level plus three. That's true, but that's really only a starting point because in games like D20 Modern, some of the classes like Dedicated allow you to have skill emphasis where you can get big bonuses to certain skills by saying that you're concentrating on that area. Yeah, also you get bonuses from your stat. And also some feats. Most of your combat actually is not based on strength, it's based on your dexterity. They're all dex-based skills. 
if I only had a choice of having two higher than average stats, be dex and, and intelligence. I can compensate for everything else. Well, if you're in a game that has, like, D20 of Modern has weapon finesse, where you can take a light weapon, like a, a rapier or something, and use your dex bonus add to your to hit. But you're still going to be running in that situation where if you don't have at least a, uh, an average strength, you're going to end up not being able to carry the essential things that you need to carry. Yeah. Mm, yes. But looking here under the D20 Modern, it says the standard score package for heroic characters is, is 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, and 8. Ah, yes. The elite Array, yes. Yeah, which means that you have at least... Three plus ones and one plus two. And at least one minus one. One minus one, right. That's where your, your dump stat comes into effect. You could bring that down to where you had the three plus ones and no minuses. My uh, recommendation, not knowing what your character is or what you're trying to do or what the mission is, if you just, just talk about you know characters, I would say have no dump stats, no minuses, and try to get as many stats with pluses in them, especially strength, dex, and intelligence. And work out that synergy, too. Like you said, for intelligence, you will determine how many skill points you have. So if you want a lot of skills, you, you want to be kind of smart. There's a lot of people who, uh, who love the uh, thief class because they started off with, in some cases, ten times as many skill points as other classes. Yeah, for D&D, the rogue is 8-plus intelligence modifier, and then for first level, multiply that by 4. So even if you have, like, let's say, a 14 intelligence, that's a plus 2 modifier, you're getting 40 skill points for first level. Right, yeah. compared, compared to somebody who's like a fighter who only gets, like, 2. 2-plus two intelligence mod, yes. So They get 8. That's, like, 5 times as many skills uh, as just by playing a thief. Well, you also have to take into account that the rogue has oh so more many class skills than a fighter does. I can probably count on both hands and have a couple fingers left over on the class skills that a D&D fighter has as compared to a rogue, which is almost every skill. <laughs> but if you're, if you're trying to build a more general character, that would probably be the way to go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So speaking of class combos, when I was looking over Fringeworthy, the thing that struck me was you probably wanted to concentrate on the dedicated class, which is a wisdom-based class. The two things. The class provided you with skill emphasis, which allows you to put big bonuses into certain skills, the ones that you actually do want to, to concentrate on. And it also gave you what was called the healing knack, which gave you bonuses to healing. In a game like Fringeworthy and, and uh, Bureau 13, if you don't include things like the D&D-type clerics, a lot of times you don't have a whole lot of healing going on. Having a skill that allows you to really repair damage as part of your class can really be important to your survival. What it does mean is that you can keep yourself from dying of sepsis and infection long enough so you can get to a doctor someplace. So when I was looking at it, I said, okay, take a lot of stuff in the dedicated primarily, and then when you can, take the IDET Explorer advanced class because that gives you all kinds of great bonuses in the very thing that you are to be an explorer. The class was designed as IDET thought was the, the kind of skills, the kind of class abilities that would make you the perfect explorer. And that's what you get bonuses in in the IDET Explorer class. 
if you're going to play a solo character, it just seems to me like you would really want to go and take some levels, possibly even concentrate as much as possible in that IDET Explorer class. Yeah. The other class is the Transporter class, which is the Driver class, because it allowed you to take vehicles and make them do amazing James Bond-type stunts, which can be really useful if you're driving over broken ground or if somebody's lobbing grenades at you and other type of situations. You yeah. suddenly find yourself in the middle of a stampede, Having the transporter vehicle dodge ability can really make the difference between survival and, and not survival. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri-Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri-Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.